Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 9, The Remnant. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. Find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out 15. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. The remnant carries on, and so do the kings of Persia. It will be decades more before Ezra actually moves to Jerusalem, in close parallel to Nehemiah, for whom some of you are waiting. However, it is in this interim that a diminutive yet unique jewel appears in the owner's manual the Book of Esther. It is a tale of prejudice, bravery, and deliverance, and it is firmly grounded in the habitat of its day. The catalyst of the entire story is a refusal of Queen Vashti, wife to the king who reigns after Darius, her refusal to be treated like some kind of show horse and come out essentially on parade wearing her official crown uh, the tradition that she is commanded to parade herself wearing only her crown is simply that, a tradition not based on our text. Every woman hearing this knows she can be treated as an object while fully clothed. Vashti refuses to parade wearing her crown before the drunken king who is merry with wine and his similarly merry guests. Esther 1 sets up the entire context, the parties in verses 5 through 12. The story of Esther and her clever courage serves as a deserved touchstone even today. It is all of ten chapters and an easy bedtime read, which we heartily recommend for tonight. We thus won't give it all away while we make mention of a few things. First, the entire drama is propelled by male dominance, and the nationwide search for a new queen is motivated by the king's counselors' fear of similar, shall we say, refusals from their wives at home. To quote, This very day the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Esther 1, verse 18. Not surprisingly, this one-sided habitual dynamic colors all that follows and marks Esther as all the braver. Also, one of the few things you'll hear about this book is that I am not ever mentioned in it by name. However, perhaps the most important lesson held in the book is that before Esther takes her courageous, dangerous steps and risks her life for that of her people, she first asks that all of them fast on her behalf for three days, night and day, a fast that, though not directly ascribed so in writing, is clearly targeted at me. It is on the heels of such intense community prayer to us, in faith that we have heard and will protect her, that Esther begins her mission with her most famous words, If I perish, I perish. Esther 4, 16 and 17. We'll let you read it to find out. Even if you know how it ends, it's been a while, so give it a go. We don't even have to give the story away to underscore Esther's primary lesson. She is the model of someone who sees a situation, knows the right thing to do, 
and then asks us to bless and help her in pursuing that good thing. While doing so, she does not check her mind at the door, but uses the gifts and intelligence we've given her to adapt to the situation at hand, all the while trusting in us. Were we to boil all this down to a single turn of phrase, it'd be faithful chutzpah. It's no wonder her story has been preserved all these years just so you can read it tonight and learn from her example. She recognizes our having placed her at a moment of crucial opportunity, a vital juncture for such a time as this, Esther 4.14. She steps out in faith on the way. So can you. It is after Esther's king, Ahasuerus, completes his twenty-year reign and his son, Artaxerxes, assumes the throne of the Persian Empire, that Ezra finally goes to Jerusalem. He's a direct descendant of Aaron, thus a priest, that leads what amounts to a second wave. Regular folks, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, etc. A second wave from Babylon to Jerusalem on New Year's Day. What better time for a fresh start? Covering the distance in a speedy four-month trip. Ezra 7. Artaxerxes continues in the respectful steps of Grandpa Darius and not only endorses the reverse exile, but provides large amounts of silver and gold with which to procure various freewill offerings, along with what is essentially an expense account to draw from the royal coffers for any continuing costs. Ezra 7, 11 through 28. Upon their arrival in Jerusalem, after three days of reverential stillness, by the way, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, and rams, lambs, twelve more goats, all in thanksgiving for our bringing them to this historic repatriated moment. That's all in Ezra 8, 32-35. By now you recognize the role of twelve in sacrifice, reinforcing the resonance of all the tribes of Israel in the growing remnant as it assumes the mantle, role, and responsibilities of the whole nation. In Ezra 9, verse 5, his prayer of confession and repentance on behalf of the whole nation is a watershed moment in the Abra plan a major step toward restoration. Though there are many whose hearts have not turned back to us as they have chosen to remain in Babylon, Ezra speaks for those who've come back, and in his prayer makes clear that the crucial lesson of exile has been learned. He blames their exile not on Persia nor on us, but on the sins of Israel. Though there's still much to be done before everything is restored, Ezra's prayer marks a significant turn of heart and spirit and deserves a full perusal. Here's what he says. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sin, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, Yahweh our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary, 
And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. Once again, that was Ezra 9, 6 through 9. Ezra's humble, penitent heart is shared by another soon-to-be leader who is yet back in Babylon, the final returnee, if you will, whom a good number of you were still anticipating. Those already familiar with this neighborhood in Tom generally mention him in the same breath as Ezra, thinking that Nehemiah moved from Babylon to Jerusalem at the same time as Ezra the priest. Within the frame of reference of the whole story, 13 years apart is still relatively the same time period. Uh, Nehemiah, another detail-oriented fellow, gives a return date during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah 2.1, while the fastidious Ezra makes his permanent pilgrimage in the king's seventh year, Ezra 7.7. 7. Let's just say they're not in the same caravan comparing notes on the way over. This timing difference is another reason, in addition to focus, voicing, and similar threads, that the original single work was split into separate books named for their protagonists. Nehemiah is quite similar to Ezra, though, and not only in his humility. That humility, however, is the most important facet of his personality in terms of his reckoning in the Abra plan. Now, Nehemiah is close to the king. He's Artaxerxes' official cupbearer. You know you're the king when there's always someone else close by with a glass of Zinfandel waiting for you. When Nehemiah hears from his brother, who's just returned from Jerusalem, that the people there are in great trouble... Ezra 4, 7, and disgrace, Nehemiah 1, 3, vulnerable without the city's former wall of defense, Nehemiah's reaction is a template of how to deal with bad news. He fasts and prays, alike in this to both Esther and Ezra, confessing the sins Israel has committed against us. He doesn't just leave it on the general national level, though but brings it down to his own sins and those of his own family. He also, however, knows enough of the manual himself that he quotes me to myself by way of request, reasoning with me and reminding me of what I've promised to do so that we will intervene. Summarizing Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 5, Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 1, 8 through 9, speaking to me, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Well, given his humble heart and his holding my own promises all up in my face like this, how can I not grant this guy success when he asks me to soften the king's heart? Of course the king gives Nehemiah permission to go rebuild Jerusalem's walls, though Nehemiah is so esteemed by his master that the cupbearer is only given temporary leave and is asked to return when the task is finished. 
While we're here, let us take a look at what just happened, friend. Nehemiah's merrily going along, doing his job, following me on the way, when he hears news of someone in danger, in this case an entire town. His heart is troubled, and his first reaction is to pray. Of course, he's going to take the initiative and be the solution. But he doesn't hear the news, immediately gather a posse, and ride west to intervene. He falls on his knees and calls on us, even quoting us to ourselves as a reminder of our promises, which of course is what we'd like you to notice and incorporate into your walk as well. All of it. The humility, the bringing things to us first, the willingness to be part of our answer to the problem you're bringing us, the rubbing our promises in our face while you're telling us about it all. Of course, in order to do this, you have to be a thorough enough student of Tom to know the promises we've made so you can quote them back to us. You may not have a human king's ear like Nehemiah, but you've got mine. Even if it's something of nearly global proportions, we can and will help you be part of the solution, whether you are troubled, as we are, by hunger, poverty, sex trafficking, orphans, the lack of clean water, health care, or education, and on and on. Chances are there has been someone who has felt the same nudge before and has something you can step into. But you may be more like Nehemiah and that you are the one we are calling to get things going. On the way. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. Use the link to the very first episode from our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's episode has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way, and until next time, be good to yourself.